0: Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science, and this is the POMAPS Podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. With me today is Zaid Al-Ali, currently at Princeton University. Um, Zaid, nice to have you. Thanks for having me. So... You've been working for a long time on uh, on constitutions and um, kind of the legal dimensions of Arab politics, and I know you've been working recently on uh, the broad experience of uh, constitutional negotiations, constitutional design in some of these transitional countries. I thought we could start maybe with you just kind of reflecting on what you think the most important lessons learned are of these various attempts at trying to draft constitutions and figure out a way to move ahead with transitions okay so there are a lot
1: of lessons so it's a hard it's hard to to recap them all in a a conversation but um, i think the most important lesson was that um, there wasn't a proper appreciation at the beginning of 2011 of uh, the nature of arab constitutions and uh, what fundamentally needed to be changed about them so uh, people have written about this in the past that um, the previous generation of Arab constitutions, so from the 1950s to the 1970s, those were written, those that were written during that time were principally written in order to uh, concretize or codify an elite pact, right? So a pact between, you know, whoever happened to be ruling the country, king, prime minister, president, and different groups of elites, right? So businessmen, uh, military officers, uh, trade unions perhaps, that type of thing, right? That's what the constitution was dis- was was how, how it was conceived of during that time. And it was actually conceived of that way also, this is what I'm researching at the moment, also under colonial, the colonial period as well. It was a different configuration, but it was, mm-hmm. so the colonial period instituted that, or perhaps even it may even predate it as well. I don't know. I won't go that far back. But so the, but certainly the colonials uh, kept it in motion at least, and then it was adapted after in the, pre, in the independence constitutions. And then in 2011... Uh, there was a great opportunity to reconfigure the constitutions completely, right? To understand, once again, uh, to look at what the what was fundamentally wrong about these constitutional arrangements and how to redesign them. And instead of doing that, all the constitutional drafters in the region, with no exception, including Tunisia, and I can get into that in a second, all they did is tinker with the elite pact. So all they, do, um, all they, all they did in that circumstance is, uh, what they do is that they take a pre-existing elite pact and tilt the balance of powers back in favor of the president or back in favor of the parliament, remove some powers from the military, that type of thing, but don't change anything else fundamentally about the constitution. And what's really missing, is really the key about what's wrong about our our constitutional tradition, is the link between the state as a whole, right? So all of these elite groups, right? So the institutions like the military, like the courts and so on and so forth, and the president, the parliament, etc., etc., and all those people representing the state or constituting the state and the individual, right? That's what was not reconfigured, right? The way in which that was conceived during the time, right, so in 2011, 2012, 2013, is in order to deal with the demands of ordinary people, of ordinary Egyptians and Tunisians so on and so forth, the solution that was uh, devised was to give them more rights, right? So previously they would have some socioeconomic rights, let's give them more now. Let's give them something like the right to water, you know, the right to a higher education will maybe tighten the language a little bit, improve the language a little bit. But that doesn't do anything to reconfigure the relationship because all of those rights are aspirational. They're not supposed to be implemented. And that's not, I don't mean that in the sense of it's a trick, it's a ruse, they're not going to be implemented. By design, they're not supposed to be implemented. There's nothing in the design that allows for those rights to be implemented. So what, what would have been preferable would have been for everyone that was involved in constitutional negotiations at the time to really think carefully about why did our constitutional tradition fail? What's fundamentally wrong with it? Carry out an autopsy, right? And understand what was wrong right from the start, back, dating back more than 100 years, is the relationship between the state and the individual is practically non-existent.
0: Right? But in these transitional contexts, I mean, I think there was a real hurry to, to, to bring about change, this idea that you had to do it while the iron was hot. And so maybe there wasn't a feel. People didn't feel they had the opportunity to, or the time to go back and do an autopsy on uh, a a century's legacy.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's right. There's no question, right? So, and that that's really one of the unique features of um, the Arab Spring, or you know whatever it is that you want to call it, right? So if you compare it to a country like Kenya or South Africa, you know those countries went through a long period. which they, you know, they incubated ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, Kenya's constitutional process lasted for almost 10 years, right? Something like that. Um, Whereas in the Arab, you know, in the Arab region in 2010, uh, those people who were following it very closely knew that there was a lot of commotion going on, there was protests and so on and so forth. But no one, even those people who had a lot of hope that the protests would lead to something, most of those people had no appreciation that was going to lead to the sorts of things that happened in 2011. So almost no thought went into this sort of Mm -hmm. thing that we're talking about, the autopsy, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, uh, what could have been done would have been to allow sufficient breathing space for constitutional negotiators by coming up with relatively good interim arrangements that could have held the countries together for a few years to allow for constitutional negotiators to really look at the whole institutional arrangement of the state. Right? Um, And sadly, it wasn't done because, you know, all these policymakers or officials who seized power early in 2011 started making all these crazy promises to people that we're going to get it done in just a few weeks or a few months. In Tunisia, initially, they said they would draft a new constitution in three months. In Libya, they said they'd do it in four months. Uh, In Egypt, they initially said six months, right? Whereas, you know, as we know from the experience of other countries, writing a constitution, a good constitution, takes years.
0: Well, remember, in most of these countries, there was a a very important debate about the sequencing of these major decisions. You know, do you start with elections? Do you start with constitutions? And uh, you know, I've heard a lot of uh, of arguments that you should do the constitution first, so that you settle the rules, and then you're able to compete under. A settled set of rules and uh, back at the time I tended to feel that uh, this was a recipe for endless delay that if you postpone the elections they'll get postponed indefinitely because that would be a way to just basically not have a transition to democracy and where does your position on this, fo- where, where do you fall on this then? Because it, it sounds like if you wanted to have a kind of a long extended period of constitutional negotiation and debate, then that would be an awfully long time to postpone elections.
1: Okay, so what you're talking about, basically the, the postponing elections thing, that's basically what happened in Yemen, right? So, you know, in Yemen, they decided not to have their election first. They started the, the national dialogue process. It took a year to prepare for that, Right. And then a year to actually do the national dialogue, right? So all of 2012 they're preparing for it, then all of 2013 they're doing the dialogue, then throughout all of 2014 they're drafting the constitution, and then the war starts, right? So that's the, their election, God knows when that will take place, right? So that 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 scenario basically, you know, mm-hmm. uh, argues in your favor. Now where I fall down is nowhere, somewhere in between, right? So you know I'm realistic and I understand that the push for elections, the call for elections at that time was a very strong and compelling one in a country like Libya, which had no experience at all with any, even sham elections, right? You know, to tell people, listen, you're going to have to wait for another five years to have your elections, that would never have worked. That would, People would have understood that as being a ploy, right? Uh, having said that, just because you have to organize elections doesn't mean that you have to surrender yourself completely to the results of the elections, right? So, you know, a constitutional process can be designed in a specific way, right? So that you'll have an electoral result that will have a big impact on the way in which the constitution is, is, uh, is drafted, but it won't necessarily be the only thing that will impact it. You can create institutions, frameworks, you know, so you know, a good example is in Kenya, uh, they had different institutions that were involved in the drafting of their constitution, right? So one was a committee of experts that was composed through various mechanisms, in part by the African Union, and which included six Kenyans and three Africans, right? And the committee of experts played a big role in writing their constitution, and there was also a parliamentary drafting committee as well, what was interesting about the Kenyan process is that the draft would sometimes, according to agreed-upon process, the draft would sometimes be in the control of the Committee of Experts, it would pass to the Parliamentary Committee, then would pass back to the uh, to the Committee of Experts, and then it would be debated in a national dialogue, and then afterwards a referendum, so on and so forth, right? So there's various stages in the process, a very sophisticated and well-thought-out process, which was absolutely absent in all of our processes, apart from perhaps Yemen, but that suffered from the fatal flaw right. of not having any elections at all, right?
0: Well, so you've, uh, in your own work, and uh, both professionally and, and your writing, um, you talk— or... The role of international experts and the role of, kind of these outside experts who are able to come in and advise, maybe fill that role of, the, of this council of experts, you know, being able to go into Tunisia or go into an Egypt or go into these places and explain the implications of different types of constitutional choices. Do you do you feel like that was a productive contribution to the constitutional debate, or did it simply allow them to sidestep the national? Political dialogue, which you, which I, it sounds like you think is really important to sure. legitimating the constitution and to getting it right. Sure.
1: No. So it's. I mean, it's. Um. It, it was only productive and worthwhile to a limited extent, right? So, and it also depends on which country you're talking about. So, in Egypt, you know, it was very, very limited because, as you know, you know, the Egyptians don't, don't, don't let anyone near their process, right? So, if you're not Egyptian, you just can't get in. So, even me, I'm Iraqi. I'm not. Uh, I'm not Egyptian. But then again, I'm not American. I wouldn't be allowed into the drafting chamber. I would only be able to speak to people individually in coffee houses or their homes and that type of thing, right? Whereas in a country like Yemen, you know, you know, I and others were there in the drafting chamber working with the drafters. Not like we were one of them, but pretty close, pretty close, right? Um, but, but nevertheless, it's not the same as Kenya's Committee of Experts, because in Kenya's, in the Kenya's case, the Committee of Experts were really drafting the text, right? And that's pretty unique and actually very important, I would say, particularly for countries like ours... Um, you know, Kenya included, because, you know, and if you look at a country like Egypt, we've had, you know, in 2011, we had a, an interim constitution that was drafted by, you know, a panel of experts that was appointed by the SCAF, and then we had, uh, you know, so, you know, uh, pretty hardline, uh, you know, conservative uh, legal scholars and judges and so on and so forth of an older generation, right? Then we had a Muslim Brotherhood-dominated panel as well, right? And then we had another committee of experts produce a draft that was also, once again, in 2013, once again pretty hardcore in terms of their traditional values and how they perceive of the constitution. And then a committee of of 50 people were appointed by the interim president, so on and so forth. The only people who never really controlled the pen, who held the pen and controlled the drafting process, were progressives, right? They were never allowed that opportunity. And that's what the committee of experts in Kenya allowed Hmm. to happen. The committee of experts included an individual who was Far outside the popular mainstream in in Kenya, far, far outside, right? But was a really excellent constitutional scholar, right? And really produced some great results for ordinary Kenyans, right? Some of them may not appreciate it today, maybe they do, I don't know, but it really is a really progressive text thanks to the contribution of individuals like that and in Egypt and Tunisia didn't didn't
0: didn't some egyptians who might fit that description worry about being basically just like a sh- a cover for the sham yeah, being exploited of, because of the whole process
1: right yeah. so so in when the committee of 50 was appointed in Egypt right, in 2013 2013 so this is the committee of 50 people who were appointed by the interim president uh in 2013 to replace the Muslim Brotherhood dominated uh the Muslim Brotherhood drafted document um, that committee of fifty included around about seven progressives. So out of out of fifty, seven people who could be described as somewhat or very progressive. Many other people were invited to participate as well, and they refused for that reason. Right? Mm. But if the, the but the reason why they refused, I thought I think I thought was valid was that the people who refused understood that they would be outvoted on every single major issue. Right. So that they were providing those people who accepted were providing a cover right. for you know, what was not a very progressive drafting process, right? And their presence had no, almost no impact whatsoever, right? So, so but just to go back to this issue, so the, the, the role of internationals and so on and so forth, the, the distinction between, um, you know, the Arab process, the Arab Spring process, or the process that took place between 2011 and a country like Kenya, is that people like me and others, we would talk to the drafters, but there was absolutely no obligation on their part to listen to anything that we said, not even to hear what we were saying, right? So sometimes we would speak, we would give them documents and so on and so forth, there was no indication that any of that stuff was being read, okay? So, you know, there was no, no way to compel for them to actually even respond, not to take them into account, but that's another issue, but to actually just respond to what we were saying, to deny us the right to influence the process based on a legitimate substantive argument, right? There was nothing, nothing like that was happening at all. So on a few occasions we were able to, manage, to influence the drafting process, but nowhere near to the extent that some people would have liked, and nowhere near to the extent that would have saved this process from being as redundant as it became.
0: So the last question then, go back to something you, uh, you, you started to talk about before, which is Tunisia, which for many people actually is a success story, where I think a lot of people think that Tunisia got the process right, and you sound more skeptical about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So on the issue of the relationship between the individual and the state, uh, the Tunisians did one great thing, which is to incorporate Article 49, right? And that, for the first time in the Arab region, actually provides a mechanism to judge whether or not regulations of fundamental rights are being done in accordance with the Constitution, right? So that changes the whole relationship between the individual and the state. Because previously you would have something like, for example, uh, freedom of movement, right, or freedom of speech. It would, the Constitution would say there is freedom of movement. But you all, there's always regulation, there's always limitations on those rights. But there was no way to know whether or not a regulation was in conformity with the Constitution or not. That would be improvised by the courts or by the, by the president and so on and so forth. Now Article 49 specifically states that there are certain procedures that need to be fit and certain substantive criteria that need to be satisfied in order for a regulation for limitation on a fundamental right to be valid in according to the Constitution. So that's that's a great thing. right? And that was very much inspired by South African, German, Canadian tradition and so on and so forth. And that's already having an impact across the region because... Libya is thinking of adopting the same thing if they ever get out of their war, and Yemen is the same as well, Mm -hmm. right? So that's a very positive thing, and I'm very happy about that. Another positive thing as well is their design for the constitutional court. That's very good, too. But where they get things very wrong, for example, right? So I'm going to just speak briefly about the substance and then go back to the the procedural issues, right? So where they get things very wrong is, as anyone who knows anything about Tunisia will say, that Tunisia is a deeply divided country where you have the coastal areas and the rest of the country, which is dirt poor, Right? And everyone knows the dynamics of the uprising, where it all started in these poor areas, and so forth. You know, one would have thought that they would have the constitutional drafters would have given a little bit of more thought to issues like decentralization, more local, uh, uh, more power to locals to determine policies that would uh, impact their socioeconomic status, and so on and so forth. And that was completely ignored, right? I mean, it's very unsatisfactory what's in the text. They may eventually get it right in subsequent legislation, but there was an opportunity that was missed. And then also the security sector, right? So. If you look at, uh, you know, the history of Tunisia with its security sector, this very problematic history, you would have thought, once again, that they would redesign the relationship between the presidency and, the, and security institutions in a way that would allow for more oversight. And it's just not there. It's just nothing, right? So one of the reasons why this happened was because of the design, right? So the design, in a sense, was good because you have an elected constituent assembly which allowed for, you know, all sorts of people to be participating in the drafting process, Right. So some of them were Islamists, some of them were right-wing, some of them were very progressive, and that's a good thing, right? But what was really missing in the drafting process was any type of mechanism that would allow for, you know, civil society groups, uh, academics, experts, progressives, to ensure that their ideas were being heard by the drafters, right? So the only mechanism that they actually had was to speak to the media, right, so people on the outside of the process, to speak to the media, or to participate in conferences. And I've been to, I went to a ton of those conferences, and I, like many other people, are completely convinced that drafters would show up at those things and not really listen to anything that was being said, right? Because they were under no obligation. They would go because they felt that they had to, right? And then, you know, get a coffee and that sort of thing, right? And not really listen, right? What would have been great if, is if there had been a type of mechanism. So either a committee in the Consumer Assembly that represented people from the outside, you know, people that were agreed upon experts and progressives and so on and so forth, that could have had a type of impact that the committee of experts in Kenya had, or, like, for example, a form that you could fill in, right? You know, a parliamentary form, you as an outsider can provide comments on the draft, and if you satisfy the form and fill it in properly, then we must respond to you within a specific period of time. We either accept it or we don't, right? and we have to give you reasons as to why we've accepted or not. Right? That would have changed the whole dynamic. Instead, it was just like, okay, we've let these people, let them do it, let's let them draft it. right? And without any type of guidance or rules about how it should be done or whatever, and it led to the sort of breakdown that we
0: saw in 2013. Right? Sounds like a metaphor for the entire uh, uh, process of uh, political scientists engaging with uh, with policy. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But well, great. This, this is really interesting. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Zaid Lali, for joining us on the Maps podcast, and um, thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks very much.